This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. Today, Mark Padongpot stops by to talk about his exciting new book, Flavors of Empire, Food and the Making of Thai America. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. Uh, I'm your host, Eric Jones, and with us in studio is Mark Padonkbot. Mark, welcome. Yeah, it's good to be back again. Yeah, we we always uh, love to have you, uh, and... uh, now we're it's it's uh it's it's you you t- you kind of had a ranging subject of Thai studies on your last episode. Now it's all about Mark. So we <laughs> we have the the uh, we're here to 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 talk about among other things his his uh, recent book Flavors of Empire: Food and the Making of Thai America. Um, it's out. It's getting it's getting great reviews. It it uh, it's eminently readable. I encourage our listeners to go out and get it. We'll put it. Links up here, and so um, congratulations. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, that's uh, that's uh, no uh, uh, no easy task. Uh, as uh, as historians know, we we uh, my I remember my advisor saying um, when I was mentioning that someone had you know they had like five books in ten years, and he's like, well, good historians only write one worth reading every 10 years. So <laughs> this is the one worth reading. This if, is the one worth reading, yeah. <laughs> stay tuned, stay tuned, 20, 28 for the next yeah. one. Right, the next is, I'm sure, I'm sure you'll buck the, uh, you'll buck the trend. Um, but uh, the, obviously the, the Thai food is, um, as you, as you note, is, uh, is something that is, has this interesting space of being, uh part of a Thai American community that is, that is often invisible. Um, yeah. And also, but being a food culture that is now like very visible. And so this seems like a really, um, kind of most important topic, uh, to talk about. Um, but maybe take us into, uh, what is the genesis of this project? How did you set out to write about Thai food? Yeah. Uh, I mean, what I tell most people and in, in, because it's true, I didn't want to write about food at all. <laughs> the reluctant. Uh, uh... I, I have a very ambivalent relationship to Thai food. Um, it was really important to me growing up. Uh, so I was born and raised in L.A. Uh, in the 1980s. And, you know, I was around Thai food most of my life. Which you say up. is a real epicenter for the Thai American community. Yeah, that's correct. So the largest Thai community yeah. um, in the United States and outside of Thailand. Uh, and so I, ha- I had this really ambivalent relationship to it um, because, you know, I, I knew I was Thai growing up and I was around the Thai community, yeah. but then no one else really knew who we were. And so when I would, I felt like, uh, you know, I was just read as like Chinese or Asian or whatever. Mm. And, but when they did know about Thai people, it was always through food. So once <laughs> they discovered I was Thai, I'm like, oh, I love Pad Thai. Oh, I love Thai food. And, yeah. you know, growing up, that was weird, but didn't really think much of it. But I knew when I got to uh, uh, the University of Oregon to do my undergrad and in graduate school, I knew I wanted to, I, like, when I started thinking about uh, doing a, writing a history of yeah. Thai Americans, I was convinced and uh, motivated to do a history of Thai America outside of food. Like, here's everything you need to know about the Thai community that's not related to food. And then discovered that that wasn't even possible uh, because I think there were so many... 
connections with Thai food uh, within the Thai community. And then it might have been even like artificial to try to avoid that topic because it, it was the, the 800 pounds. You know, right, no, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I felt like, you know, um, you know, I, I just wanted to move away from it uh, and felt like it, it had been so much. Uh, I'd been associated with Thai food for so long that I wanted, you know, people to know about Thai people beyond our food culture. Um, but then, you know, a lot of things started happening around me. So uh, Anthony Bourdain, a lot of these uh, travel network food shows started featuring right. Thai food uh, more more regularly. Uh, it had grown. It, be, it had become hyper visible. And for me, as a graduate student trying to write about Thai Americans and not having any uh, scholarship yeah. on Thai Americans, it was sort of like, wait a minute, we're really invisible. Uh, Thai community activists are talking about uh ties having to overcome the invisibility factor and yet we're so hyper visible uh in terms of food culture and american food culture and so what do i do with this and so i decided then that i was just going to tackle it head on and say okay well then how did this come to be and i think that i felt like that was a worthy question to explore and 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 for that and that increasing visibility of hyper visibility of 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 thai food and now and, and maybe the 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 more sophisticated um, uh, you know, passersby of of culture, like now, now to 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 set kind of an, an academic, like here's 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 someone who's thought about this, and here's something if you're if you're if you want to you know scratch the surface, uh, that not now something exists where it didn't, and so like yeah, there's there's a, like a need there, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, I I've said this before too, where you know I just want to be clear that. It's not so. When you, if you read the book, and I hope that you all do, uh, it's not a his, it's not a history of Thai food. And so, if you're expecting kind of a history of Thai culinary practices, like it's not that. And then it's also not quite a history of the Thai community either. And so, if you're looking for, uh, you know, the role of newspapers and community organizations and uh, political movements, like you're, you're going to get some of that. Um, and it, but it's really this combination of both histories that I'm trying to to weave together. Yeah, and I guess for the maybe for the non-historians, like a good a good social cultural history that 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 is going to draw on that's going to create this this great pastiche from from the all of these all of these uh, uh, streams that contribute to the Thai American experience in this, but but something to hold on to in this uh, respect. Okay, so. Um, Give us a give us a thumbnail sketch of of the the kind of twentieth century, I guess, especially post war um, Thai Thai U S interactions experience, Thai American experience, and and which will lead us to the food. Yeah, yeah. So um, the you know one of the points I make uh, in the book is that the history of uh, Thai food in America or, or in the United States doesn't start when Thai step foot. Uh, on U.S. soil, but it starts when the United States uh, intervenes in Thailand during um, the Cold War. And so for me, it was really important because uh, I really wanted to understand U.S. global expansion and how it helped, I guess, fuel a sort of growing multiculturalism in the United States or an affinity, uh, uh, familiarity maybe is a better word, with uh, Asia and the Pacific. As the Do you US. think that does, does that happen with uh, uh, Americans who are going over as well as the Americans here who become 
uh, woke about uh, that there's that there's a Southeast Asia and we should care about it or what? How is both or what do you think? Yeah, it's a little bit of both, right? Because um, you know the United States is you know strategically, sort of militarily and politically, you know, concerned about growing communist revolution um, in Southeast Asia. So Thailand becomes kind of a strategic locale for that. And amidst this, uh, uh, Americans, both sort of military officials and in uh, non-state actors as well. Uh, so tourists, uh, educators. Uh, and so they're going and uh, they're going to Southeast Asia. They're going to Asia and um, producing some knowledge about uh, these populations. But then at home, uh, and this is where I borrow from uh, Christina Klein's work, uh, Cold War Orientalism, there's also popular culture, middle brow culture, that is introducing mm. uh, Americans to uh, to Asia and the Pacific in more po- with the more positive spin that it, that it had in U.S. history. Uh, again, in an attempt to sort of build um, this kind of emotional connection to the peoples and cultures of Asia. So, so it seems that the the '60s are especially a turning point in um, uh, for that for that interaction with Thai Americans. So, so tell us what are what are some of the what are some of the early early turning points in uh, in in this interaction? Yeah. So I. St- you know, one of one of the the figures, I guess, that can can launch us into the turning point. So, the, the first turning point in terms of the the rise of the history or the rise of Thai food in the United States and how food becomes important is uh, this one woman named Marie Wilson who publishes Siamese Cookery, and she publishes this in 1965. Marie Wilson is a suburban homemaker from West Los Angeles. Uh, Siamese Cookery. Uh, is the very first Thai cookbook to be published in the United States. And huh. how that came to be is uh, Marie's fiance at the time was teaching English on a Fulbright fellowship in Thailand. And so she goes to Thailand in the 1950s to join him. And while she's there, she hires uh, a Thai cook to live uh, with the family. And so learns recipes from this Thai cook and then travels throughout Thailand collecting recipes and then comes back home to L.A., huh. And publishes this cookbook and spreads uh, this knowledge or shares uh, this cuisine, this newfound cuisine, uh, for her with uh, other suburban housewives. And so, that, how, how does she market it to the suburban housewife? Like, does she make a case for here? Yeah, yeah. So, and you know, so one of the things she focuses on is this kind of uh, hot and spicy flavors mm. that are going to awaken new parts of your palate, uh, the smells that will really enliven your kitchen. And also, it's not just, untrue. Yeah. It's not untrue. None <laughs> yeah. of these things are untrue. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and that this will help make your dinner time and even some of your parties uh, a little more uh, festive and fun and different. One of the things I uh, maybe inside baseball, but I was uh, um, I was thinking as I was looking at that is that those recipes like do they work like if you, if you compare them like is it, is there, is there lots of like substitution like if you don't have this use this like what, what so. Have, the, you try, have you tried them? Yeah, so so, so <laughs> I've I've tried them and I've cooked them and they're pretty awful. So uh, <laughs> uh, and, and let me let me get more specific here. Uh, and so when I, uh, the way that I talk about Siamese cookery in the book is, you can use that cookbook as a way to trace the availability <laughs> of Thai ingredients in the United ah. States, right? And so, for example, uh, her recipe for gang kung uh, shrimp curry, she's you know, saying, hey, we don't have a lot of these ingredients, but you got to use anchovy paste instead of fish sauce and fish, oh, fish paste. <laughs> um, cayenne pepper instead of any Thai chili. And here's the kicker. Sour cream 
instead of coconut cream. So you can just imagine this. So it's not even like a curry. It's like a shrimp stroganoff of some. <laughs> some that is the craziest. Um, yeah, we should cook some of that. Like, and you know, I have this. Have my students eat it like as a as a, as a as an experience. Yeah, as back in time yeah. travel. This like. is tasting. This is taste change over time. Wow, that is terrifying. We just we just had a delicious uh, Thai meal ourselves, and yeah, the it seems scary to think about. You mentioned ingredients, and you know that that is a that is a really important part of of trying to reproduce Thai food or trying to trying to make it at all. So, um, how does that happen? And and tell us a little about the nuances of of uh, of, of of the ingredients as part of the story. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, nineteen six. So that relationship between Thailand and the United States also then leads to not only the the movement of the cuisine. Uh, to the United States, but also the movement of Thai people. And so you have a large number of Thai students who, because they've interacted with um, U.S. Peace Corps volunteers, with a, a number of uh, U.S. Uh, educational organizations, so they come to the United States to study. And uh, there's, you know, a couple hundred, and they're studying in colleges throughout California, throughout Southern California. And one of the things that they want and they don't have is Thai food. And so they're without the the proper ingredients, you know, they're craving this this Thai so food. Driven by the Thai students and, and and immigrants. Exactly, exactly. So once they get to the United States, they're like, hey, we can't cook this curry with sour cream, right? Like it's, <laughs> we can't do this. And so the there's a couple of things that they do. Um, and it's a combination of uh, substitution, uh, procuring ingredients. So a couple of things. The, the first thing they do is they just go to the Chinese market in Chinatown, uh, try to get what they can, soy sauce, but no fish sauce. Um, you know, so they're working with what they got. And so they try to replicate flavors that way. The other thing they do is they start smuggling uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, in their personal affect, in their suitcases, uh, you know, like bai makru, uh, uh, kefir lime uh, leaves, uh, canned goods, curry yeah. paste. Uh, so they start lemongrass. So they start bringing uh, some of these and by the way, a lot of these ingredients are uh, banned from being uh, imported to the United States. So like lemongrass, uh, uh, kefir lime, baimakut is, is uh, there's... Uh, What's the logic for the ban? So the ban is uh, they were concerned for kefir lime specifically about canker disease, that it would spread okay. among the citrus population uh-huh. in, uh, in the United States. And so it was banned. Uh, so, th- so they smuggled it. And then in the 1960s, I believe uh, a group of Thai women had discovered a kefir lime tree in Riverside, California, <laughs> which is about 60 miles east of downtown L.A. or Hollywood area where the a lot heavens, of Thais The heavens up. open. The heavens and open, <laughs> and it just seems like there's this— they, and, it, and literally, they do these pilgrimages wow. on the weekends to go to uh, where this, this tree is. And I don't think they were allowed to, but they would pick the leaves off these trees— um, take it back home, right? Make the uh, an, uh, the 120 mile round trip, go back to LA, freeze them in Ziploc bags, and then use them for things right. like uh, nampik pao and 
uh, curry paste, all kinds of uh, things for, you know, these are, this is the basis for like tom yum soup, right? Yeah. Um, so a lot of Thai food. And so they discovered that and um, that's how they sort of got to work with some ingredients. But then the, the, I think the major turning point here is the opening of the Bangkok market in 1971 by Pramod Tilaka who was an entrepreneur, saw that the Thai community was growing around him. And, and, and that's an actual physical space in, in West Hollywood? That's correct. Uh, it, so it's a physical space in East Hollywood. East Hollywood. Yeah, so that's where um, he opens the market. Then he opens an import-export company to bring Southeast Asian food, uh, long beans, jackfruit, kalanka. Uh, and his customers are, are from the, the, the newly immigrant Thai community. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So newly Im- uh, new uh, Thai immigrants are his, his main customer base. And the interesting part of that story is not just that he makes it available, but then the sourcing of the ingredients themselves. And so this is really interesting when we think about what is authentic, what is not authentic. So by the 1980s, he opens up two free trade zones in Mexico, in Nayarit and Sinaloa. Hmm. And 90, 90% of all the Southeast Asian in- ingredients that were coming to the United States were from Mexico. And it, it's because of the Bangkok market and from Otilakamonkun. So he so he's kind of designating like, okay, let's grow coffee lime and lemongrass and jackfruit. And, uh, and then those are piped directly to the Bangkok market. Yep. And... A big part of the story, um, so his son, Jet uh, Tilaka Mungkung, who's now like a huge celebrity chef, uh, a really, really great guy. Um, so, you know, in, in his telling of the story is that, you know, this was uh, just sort of ingenuity on his, his father's part because they wanted a year-round supply. Um, and then the other, part of right. the, that the other part of the story is that it was really difficult to get through customs. And so we're talking about a moment in the 1970s and 1980s where customs agents um, have uh, are have a larger workload because they're trying. They they need to inspect all the food that's coming that's being imported into the United States, and so those barriers, I think, forced Bramo uh, to become a little bit more creative in terms of where he was going to get his produce, having to circumvent customs laws. And so by opening those two free trade zones, there's no uh, yeah. they can you know they're basically. Uh, uh, duty-free, and you can uh, circumvent customs. Yeah, I mean, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, so uh, the uh, the lengths that they're willing right. to go to are are, are impressive. Uh, I've seen that from our own uh, Southeast Asian uh, students population here, who they will they will go long distances to get the right uh, to get it the matters. right it uh, ingredients. So, so the the. Immigration kind of act in the 60s uh, opens up this. So there's this new population of, among others, Thai uh, who who want want their own um, home cuisine. And uh, so that that's that that kind of explains the, the Bangkok market phenomenon. Um, uh, maybe how does it how does it shift outside of that? When does the, the there's a boom that you explain um, how does it how does it grow from being driven by the ties who are in America to um, America at large? Right, right. So you know the Bangkok market fuels some of the uh, Thai restaurants within East Hollywood. So kind of insular within, uh, I, I guess you can call it. Uh, there wasn't quite an ethnic enclave, but within the the Thai community, by the 1980s, uh, that's when you really get the, the the Thai food boom to American society, and that boom happens. The epicenter of that is the West. 
Los Angeles and West Hollywood, which is one of the wealthiest, uh, widest neighborhoods in um, in Southern California or in that area. Uh, and it happens again. Promote sees an opportunity to to make some money here, right? Like we, we got right. a, a customer, a, a wealthy customer base, and opens uh, the first or one of the first Thai restaurants in uh, 1979 in uh, right next to Fox Studio. So this is an interesting Probably part not of by the accident. story. Not by accident. So here's, uh, and it was a surprising part of the story for me because I didn't and I didn't expect this. Um, but one of the things I argue in the book is that Los Angeles's or, or Hollywood, the Hollywood, the Hollywood industry, the music, movie industry, film industry, I argue that it gave or it helped give a Thai food and Thai cuisine a kind of cultural cachet, like a trendy cachet that I'm not sure would have happened had it have if, if right. all, the, all the all the cool beautiful people are are exactly. loving this food exactly, and you see this because. Uh, well, one, when Pramod opens up Royal Thai Cuisine, he opens it up next to Fox Studios. No one really knows Thai food, so what he does is he makes it, uh, he puts a sign out uh, outside his restaurant and says, hey, free Thai food. And people are like, I don't even know what that is. <laughs> but he brings these industry people in, producers and writers, and they get hooked, according to uh, yeah. his son Jet, right? And And then within a few years, you see other Thai chefs. There's a Thale Sai restaurant and Prakash Yambanrung and then Victor Sotsuk who opened Siamese Princess. And they boast and rave about, you know, Harrison Ford comes all the time. Madonna has her own booth They have like here. the headshots on yeah. the... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if they did that, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, in the cookbooks, they were like, Prince eats here. Ooh, uh, Madonna yeah. has her own booth here. And I, I do feel like that kind of association helped give it a bit of uh, status. And, and uh, you've got some interesting um, kind of demographics about, or uh, kind of uh, geographic data about um, the, the whole Thai, the Thai community start start. The businesses seem like tightly clustered around around these, uh, uh, the, the creating creating these these enclaves. Is that um, I, I guess the the is the is the Thai community. The um, is, I guess do they need for for the I just kept thinking to, to support that many businesses you have to have more than just Thai they're eating there, and so I guess is, is the is the 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 boom allows this flourishing um, in in that in that in that zone um, and uh, yeah I guess do they do they is there evidence that the that the uh, how does it how does it get outside of of, of Los Angeles, because now it it is it is everywhere. There is a Thai there is a Thai restaurant. <laughs> so I just came back from <laughs> I just came back from Wyoming um, from my father's 80th birthday party in in Ralston, Wyoming. Population 280, and oh, yeah. the top of the mountains, you know, Yellowstone Park. Uh, and there is a there is a there is there are Thai there who opened the restaurant. They've now moved to Cody, but um, uh, you know, so so we've gone we've gone. Uh, from from it just being a, a a Hollywood elite um kind of cuisine to 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 rural very rural um Wyoming so how how does it how does it make that move 
Yeah, no, that that's that's an interesting question. Um, and you know, uh, even though I focus on LA, I think I've I've gained uh, some kind of interesting insights as uh, writing the book. And one of the stories that didn't make uh, it into the book is uh, there's a, a restaurateur um, from Paramount, California, who actually got his start because there was this kind of Thai restaurant conglomerate group of just uh, like fa- uh, family members of Ramon, Tilakamukun, who would scout locations about where they could open up like Thai restaurants or um, or where they, they felt like it would succeed. And this one Thai restaurateur flew out to Montana and was like, yeah, you're going to just cook in uh, in Montana and see how this goes. And so he actually, you know, is cooking like Thai food in Montana and then comes back to LA to open up his own restaurant. And so I think, so part of the story there is like you have this group of Thai businessmen um, who are scouting locations. The other kind of book into this, this story, and I've seen a couple of pieces come out recently on this, is the role of the Thai government. And so in the 2000s, uh, the Thai government embarks on this economic development plan, uh, Thai Kitchen to the World, uh, the name has changed over the years, but essentially the idea is that um, Thai food has become so popular uh, and that we want to promote and use Thai food as a way to uh, increase tourism and also increase visibility for... Kind of soft power through Thai absolutely. culture. Yeah. That's right on the... You hit it right on the head. So soft power through uh, uh, gastro diplomacy right? <laughs> is, what, is the other word um, that, that, that gets thrown around uh, and that... So then they're they're putting money down for this. So they're putting money down for this, and there's two kind of key features that are really interesting. One is they're training chefs and exporting mm-hmm. them. So they're sort of like, yeah, we're gonna make sure that we send uh, properly trained Thai chefs, in in part because they feel like the Thai cuisine in the United States is is not up to par. <laughs> um, and and I argue in the book that you know it's dynamic, right? It's changing. People right. are right. chefs are right. what is Thai cuisine? Yeah, yeah. so they're they're yeah. trying all these new things. But for the Thai government, it's not Thai cuisine. Yeah. So they they export chefs to Australia, Germany, Ireland, um, and of course to the United States to open up more Thai restaurants. So that's one part of it. Is it and, like like low interest loans, or what are they giving? Are they paying for their schooling by? Yeah, that. The, I think the the schooling. I'm not sure in terms of like actually opening of the businesses how how it works or what the government is actually doing. Um, and then the other part of it is uh, they tra- they're trying to standardize Thai taste. So in in preparing these chefs and professionalizing these uh, these chefs, they're also trying to define what is authentic Thai cuisine. And I think there's even there was a story that came out a couple years ago on like a, a robot taster. So they're developing some kind of like <laughs> robot to taste uh, what Thai dishes and, and say like, yeah, I don't know how that's being measured or what the... So it can like scientifically quantify it, yep. what... What authentic oh, Thai food is. So very interesting kind of uh, uh, state intervention in terms of like uh, promoting Thai cuisine. But to, to get to answer your question, that those stories that have come out uh, I think the headlines have been misleading because they've written, why are there so many Thai restaurants in the United States? And then they, their argument is because of the Thai government. But that's only that's a recent phenomenon, right? right? That's more within the last 10 years. I think the other part of the story is from the 70s and 80s um, and that what happens in between the 70s uh, from 19, well, from 1980 to uh, 
you know, 2005 when the program, this government program really takes off. That is really a story about um, sort of Thai restaurants in L.A. Um, and that that becomes the epicenter of Thai food in the United States. Uh, and then that develops long before right. the, the government intervenes. Um, people have written about uh, the way that uh, Chinese restaurants, among others, have um, they have this sort of interesting dynamics of, of of family participation in kind of in kind of the business. In you know, there's a real kind of top to bottom um, integration of of, of intergenerational um, employment and and expectations of uh, what is it what does it look like in the in these. Uh, in these Thai restaurants over time? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, in one of the chapters, uh, you know, I devote a section. I wish I could devoted, could have devoted more, uh, but there's a section uh, behind the kitchen door that really looks at, you know, I, I argue that Thai restaurants were these uh, culinary contact zones. Um, and what that means is it's not just a place where people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds can meet in terms of consumer and producer, but also the producers in the back are coming in interaction for the first time and so um and that there's power relations happening there and one aspect of this is um you definitely see um sort of the use of family labor right and and you know sometimes we forget uh, because we focus so much on dishes that arrive on our tables but we do forget that this is in some ways like a 24 7 uh job right like you you open there's long hours um kids who uh, come to the restaurant right after school and then help uh, their parents cook food. So that was uh, very much a feature of Thai restaurants. And then the other thing is there's close relationships that develop between Thais that look like familial uh, relations. So like, oh, that's this is like my, a mother to me or this person's like a mother to me. But then that gets wielded. Aunties and cousins ev- exactly. evolved in the res- through the restaurant connection. Exactly. And that it's, it's sort of a, a sword there, right? Like a, um, in the sense that it helps because, or it helps the restaurateur and it helps uh, the cook, for example, who might be a, a cousin um, because it provides employment. Um, it provides an opportunity potentially to get a green card. But at the same time, it also gives way to intense exploitation because now mm-hmm. you can be exploited, but then it's like, well, this is my, this is my aunt. I can't really say <laughs> anything to her, to her. And so I'm just going to put my head down and do this, and so you you see that play out in a lot of Thai restaurants. What about the? So the, you mentioned the you know this kind of the sense of like well it's, it's, it needs to be authentic it needs to have um, is there uh, among the the Thai uh, American community is there to to be legit do you need to go and and train in Thailand how much time do you need to spend and like is there is there is that something that is talked about um, you know uh, bandied about is there sort of there the that if you if you really want to be um, you know, I bragging and bragging rights for how does how does that dynamic it must it must play a role? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, it for a lot of the Thai restaurateurs um, that I discuss in my book. You know, I think first it's a, to to think what you're highlighting too is it's important to see uh, Thai restaurateurs as artists as well. 
uh, creative yeah. artists. And so sometimes we, we, we sort of tend to, to view them as like they're immigrants who are trying to make money and trying to make a living. Um, but Prakat Yimbamurung, uh, Tommy Tang, who I discussed in the book, who was a really popular celebrity chef in the 1980s, these were chefs who were uh, really trying to, in their own words, like trying to evolve and develop Thai food, uh, bring something new to the table, uh, and, and really think about what Thai food could become. And so you didn't really get a sense, or at least my reading of it, I, I didn't really get a sense of um, we need to go back to Thailand and, and, and train uh, formally in order to cook this food. I think that we're really pushing the envelope, uh, especially on the on on the, uh, the the west side to to promote this cuisine. And yet at the same time, what's I'm thinking of today, like the second generation Thai Americans. Um, so Prakas Yen Bamrung has a son, Chris Yen Bamrung, who uh, has a restaurant called Night Market. And he's written a cookbook. And in the cookbook, he says, I don't care about authenticity. Like, mm. I hate it when people come to the restaurant and say, oh, yeah. you should, you know. Provocative, uh, too. Yeah. Yeah. That like a Thai yeah. American chef is saying, I don't care. This is my food. This is the food I want to cook. And so I think we're seeing that among a lot of second generation Thais who are like, I'm cooking whatever whatever my grandmother cooked is traditional to me, is authentic to me, and whatever I'm cooking is authentic. Uh, and so I think, but yeah. the other thing that's really interesting about your question is, I think that gets played out more with white chefs who are trying to cook Thai food. Right. So that's a dynamic yeah. that I think uh, is is re- like really highlighted um, by by your question. Right. Is like that gets played out for. Um, right, like I, I'm, I'm, I, I know you look at me, but I'm able to. This my food is authentic because I have these, I have these experiences. Yeah, I've yeah. gone to Thailand for a summer, and boy, I tell you, I learned a lot <laughs> from these people. I, I was, I, I sort of partly my question was inspired by. I was thinking about, you know, not to, not to, you know, critique Bourdain. I think he's he's done he's done kind of amazing things for uh, the way we think about food and food culture. But if you think about his mo. And and granted, a lot of it takes a lot of it takes place in country. So although some of it is just explores food culture too in the U.S., but there there's kind of a, um, implicit you know look back for sort of the most authentic, the most you know kind of the the uh, kind of a, a pure that you know we're going to go up to the you know the hills above Chiang Mai and really right, right. and really see how really see how they do it right. Um, and uh, and you, you know and. That's that's a that's a that's not a that's not a, a terrible way to to go about, but it but it 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 it, it implicit in that is that there's there is a you know a a, a true with a capital T capital Thai uh, food <laughs> um, that 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 needs to be that that one needs to search for. Um, how, how do how do what do Thai? Um, I mean, I can I can guess what the Thai government thinks about that. What the what do what do what do chefs in Thailand think about the fusions going on in America and elsewhere with Thai food? Yeah, no, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure what you know. Not, even if I did, I, I, I'm not sure I could speak on their behalf. Uh, right. the There's Thai not chefs one Thai, Thai right? <laughs> um, but judging from the criticism that Tommy Tang received uh, in the 1980s, Tommy Tang's an interesting figure for me because you know I started, you know, when I started writing about him, I. Uh, I didn't know really how to feel about him. He's from Hollywood. So he's so he's born in Thailand, um, and in 
uh, kind of traveled throughout the United States, was a member of a rock band, worked at Chandala, which was one of the first, res- another one of the uh, pioneering restaurants hmm. on the West Side, and starts his own restaurant. It's very 80s, right? Like, think neon, yeah. triangles, <laughs> glowing signs, uh, Tommy Tang's Thai cuisine. Uh, and, you know, but by the end of writing the book, I was like, you know, I really think Tommy was just trying to, to, to portray Thai food as something that was dynamic. And so, uh, and they say he's an artist and that, that he's, he's an artist, create, right? Like yeah. Uh, an, an eighties artist, uh, <laughs> <laughs> at that. And, but judging from the criticism that he received, so he yeah. was receiving criticism that he was like, you're bastardizing Thai food. This is not Thai cuisine. What are you doing to represent uh, Thai food uh, in L.A.? Like, who are you to do this? And so judging from that, I think there is some kind of divide in terms of uh, how Thai chefs in Thailand might have felt or, or might still feel about the the way that Thai food has been cooked um, abroad. And I, I, I couldn't argue against standards, but I think the question is who's, who's setting those standards? Right. And like right. who who's, who's in those conversations. Um, and I think if, if we can have more uh, say, well, why isn't Chris Yen Bam Rung, second generation Thai, uh, part of these conversations about what is authentic. Uh, and so I think that that uh, that's an important piece to it. Um, is there I mean, you just really your 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 book is um, focused on the, the trying to understand Thai, the Thai American experience. Um are there are there uh, comparisons or contrasts in in uh, other Thai immigrant communities around the world that are that are noteworthy? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I know that there was a uh, a master's thesis being written about Thai food in Washington D.C. Uh, and temple food in spe- uh, specifically Thai uh, Thai food festivals uh, hmm. at at Thai Buddhist temples that was uh, that was happening in Washington D.C. Um, I've seen some work that's come out. There's uh, Jenny German Moses' uh, article in Culinary Tourism focuses on Thai food in the Thai community in uh, Dallas, I believe. Okay. Um, and so you see some parallels, but I would always argue, you know, that that it's important to think about kind of local context, right? Uh, as well, I, it'd be the um, as I as I you know. In our in our jobs, we get to travel some, and you see. Uh, I've always thought when you see Thai restaurants in in various countries around the world, like I wonder, you know, and, uh, I wonder how that's. Uh, and and I and I I I often don't try them because I want to try the whatever, whatever local food. If I'm in the Netherlands, I'll try. I'll I'll lean towards Dutch food more than I'll more than I'll go. But you're intrigued, to, right? yeah. But I'm intrigued, like <laughs> yeah. And they and they. Uh, uh, you know they ha- they mu- it must be there there must be similar but also there's going to be just like the local uh, situation in in uh, Los Angeles created this niche that 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 emerged it must it must be and you know and, and where it's driven by you know the, the the large kind of gap year backpacker culture yeah um, in, in Europe that 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 experiences this has a particular experience with with Thailand that that, that informs uh, in, in the same way that the unique Peace Corps and, and the and the war in America um, frame some of that interaction, but um, um, you you are uh, your are gonna your new work um, is thinking about uh, some of the U.S. global uh, themes in in uh, Thai America. Tell us tell us a bit about some of your upcoming research. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, just just to add on what you were saying earlier, I think 
uh, what, what you made me think of is that, and, and my book is in some way guilty of this too, right? I think for so long we've talked about experiences with uh, ethnic cuisine like Thai food as a sort of white consumer, uh, non-white ethnic food ways. Yeah. But I think that it's we have to start to grapple with the fact that eaters are not simply middle-class white people. And so what happens when they're working-class Latino immigrants or <laughs> middle-class right. Latino <laughs> um, uh, Americans, right? So what is that dynamic? And I think your question really opens that up. Um, and I think there's an opportunity here to, to really, if we think about where Thai food appears throughout the United States and <laughs> around the world, I think one way to really explore that beyond just, well, here's how it's being represented in these places, but also who's eating in these places. So like what happens yeah. if who's it's cooking, opening? Who's eating, yeah. What, what if you see one in Ho Chi Minh City? Like what's the dynamic between Vietnamese owning a Thai restaurant in Ho Chi Minh City and how uh, Vietnamese eaters, what's their approach to Thai cuisine? I think that'd be really interesting to, to flesh out too. And, and behind and behind the door, like who's... Uh, uh, to, to internally plug a previous podcast that the <laughs> therapy Tan talked about that, you know, what kind of like classic Burmese cuisine, um, uh, by, by Bama ethnic, you know, uh, allegedly if you go out on the street, it's actually, you know, like Chin or Kachin or like they're, they're, they're not, um, uh, these are not Burmese who are making this, the Burmese food. And, uh, so who's, who's making that food and what, and that's called, Thai, Thai food or Burmese, whatever it is, you know, there's, there's, there's a really interesting kind of who's eating it, who's, who's, who's making it, who's marketing it. Um, I, I wanted to ask this in this, uh, this touches on, uh, I guess we were just talking about, uh, take us through, uh, there's a, there's a controversy with, you know, cuisine as multiculturalism. And, uh, I guess for, for our listeners who, 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 who know about this, I guess, uh, tell us what you think, but but maybe for listeners who don't know um, how this debate shakes out. So what is this kind of, what is the issue around cuisine as multiculturalism controversy? Yeah, so that's one of the things that, uh, or one of the goals of my book was to kind of push back against what uh, I term cuisine-driven multiculturalism. And so the debate around there is, so the cuisine-driven multiculturalism is, you know, is this idea, uh, at least that we're, we're sort of witnessing more recently, uh, well, maybe historically as well. Um, but this idea that eating the cuisine of another culture, and it's usually uh, a non-white uh, ethnic group, that that's somehow going to resolve racism or, uh, <laughs> or alleviate feelings of racial tension uh, in the United States. It's like, look, I have, it's like, it's like the equivalent of the, my black friend. No, it's uh, the exact you know. <laughs> equivalent of that, right? It's like, look, I, how dare you? I've eaten Thai food, right? Uh, <laughs> how dare you say that I'm racist? Uh, and so, but but there's a, a a lively, robust debate around that, right? So for, uh, there's one camp, and this is among scholars, but also the general public, I think. So there's one camp that sees um, eating the cuisine of others, uh, cuisine-driven multiculturalism as uh, a, a acceptable multiculturalism, that it's safe. Uh, you just can eat the cuisine. You don't really have to interact with the people. You don't, you don't have to make an investment really in their struggles. But if you just eat their cuisine, that that does something in terms of like, alleviating some or, or improving race relations. Right. It's, it's a kind of tourism that is, that is, uh, that's, that's better than no interaction. Right. Is that the logic? Right. Right. And then the other, exactly. So the other side of that debate says, well, Hey, that's better than nothing. Right. Mm. Would you, so at a moment when 
there's intense anti-immigrant sentiment. There's intense uh, efforts to uh, exclude uh, non-white communities in the United States. Well, at least eating their cuisine shows that there's some attempt to uh, right if, if valuing if them the, as if, the, if the alternative is uh, you know. Uh, tearing down signs and storefronts that are in foreign languages because you know you're immigrant bashing like the that that's eating the f- stepping into the restaurant is something that, that's, uh, that's exactly right and that's exactly the context in which um, you know that that other camp kind of comes at it and like I said I I I've gone so, back so and who's, forth so who's right yeah no I know right <laughs> let me let me give you a definitive answer here um, yeah I've gone Mark's, back and forth Mark's gonna make half the room mad and half the room <laughs> I've gone back and forth and I think. The one thing I'll say is um, I, I guess I lean more towards uh, the, the camp that sees uh, the eating of uh, ethnic food um, as uh, just a safe, acceptable multiculturalism. I think I, I side more with that critique. Um, and then I would also push you know, those who are saying that, like, well, it's better than nothing. I would also push uh, that group to think about, well, um, there are also ways that even partaking in, um, say, eating the other, right, that that can also reinforce uh, racial and ethnic divisions. Even as this labor, this this labor pool, in in terms of like you know, these are a servant master kind of is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. So that's what I argue in the book too. Is that the danger of that then becomes if we see say. Uh, you know, Thai restaurants and Thai food as just a reflection that, uh, or the number of Thai restaurants in comparison to Thai people, right? That mm. it's hyper visible. If we see that as just as just a reflection of Thai culture, that oh well, culturally, you know, it's so important to them. That's why there's so many restaurants. The danger of that is then you sort of uh, then you explain their social position or their position yeah. in society as well. That's just natural for them to work in restaurants where we know from scholarship and research that you know a lot of groups enter into industries that are open to them uh, and so i think that's part of the other danger so i think you're absolutely right yeah it's an interesting i never thought about that but it it, it kind of reifies sort of a almost a colonial plural society kind of stuff that happens where it's a race and economic function get pushed on each other so you could see like well oh he's chinese so he um he must you know he runs a restaurant or a laundry and like that you know there's this kind of sense of like oh you're thai so you must uh yeah you must work on a restaurant right right <laughs> um, and uh where you know probably like the the second generation kids like no my parents want me to be a uh, engineer or <laughs> right right yeah there's there's you know there, you, you, that's a, that's a pretty shallow um uh um uh, assumption that can that can be made um yeah, that's a, that's a, I think, I think the, and, and as we get, you know, uh, further down the, you know, it's, it's pretty, pretty recent, you know, in mid sixties, we have, you know, when you think of like third or fourth or fifth generation, um, do you have, do you have heritage students coming to your, um, to your classes or, or at the university who, um, for whom this is a, uh, you know, they're like just, American kids, like who might, you know, they, they obviously have the complexities of, of, of the Asian American experience, but they haven't really thought critically about what that means. Uh, what, what is the, what is their interaction like with this, this material? Yeah, no, I've had a couple, I've had a couple and, you know, it's always a reminder of 
you know, how I think I always sell myself short, but it's always a reminder of, I think, how important the work work is. Um, and, uh, you know, I forget that sometimes. So they always remind me of that. But they're, you know, for them, I think it's it, it does two things. One is like I've never read anything about Thai people ever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. right. And so like, thank you. For, this is yeah, yeah producing this is something. kind of like, um, you know, this is an experience that I, I'm familiar with or I, I ask the same questions. Um, you know, my my parents own a restaurant. I grew up in a restaurant. And so you know, it resonates. Yeah. So it resonates in, in that respect. Um, and then also the other thing that's really cool and surprising is that they're like, wow, I didn't know you can study this. But like, I didn't know, like, <laughs> I mean, I like Thai food, but I didn't know it was like, there's all these other things you can, uh, you know, there's all these other issues that it's, that it connects to. Right. Food ways and culture, like that's those legitimate, like, uh, fields of study that yeah. they didn't even think like, that's not a serious, like, um, well, um, uh, okay, so we've plugged your book, uh, <laughs> and uh, tell us a bit about you've got a you've got a you've got an upcoming uh, a, a podcast that that is it, it's up and running or soon to be. Tell us about your your new podcast. Yeah, so uh, so new podcast should be up and running in about a month, uh, and the podcast is on Asian Americans in Las Vegas. It's called Neon Pacific, and the idea there is just you know we really want to explore the everyday lives and communities of, of Asian Americans and Southeast Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders in the Las Vegas area. And so, so kind of, kind of an oral history narrative or what's the, what's yeah, kind of so the, the format of the podcast is going to be more narrative. Um, it's going to be nice. kind of oral history driven, oral interview driven. Um, and the, the, the kind of essence of it is I want to tell unique stories about these populations. So it's not going to be like, here's the history of the Chinese in Las Vegas, right? right. <laughs> it's going to be something like, um, you know, there might be, um, like, like actually for the first uh, episode, we're doing a, an episode on Lao Asia market, which is uh, a Lao market in Las Vegas. So one, you wouldn't even know that there was a very yeah. few people knew that there is a Lao population in Vegas. Uh, and then just thinking about, uh, Southeast Asian food culture in Vegas, I think is kind of a unique way to explore these communities. Another episode we're thinking about, uh, for the, or for the next episode is going to be, um, uh, youth football and Pacific mm. Islanders. And so youth football yeah. as a way to talk about uh, Pacific Islander communities, um, Samoan, Hawaiian communities in Las Vegas, uh, which is considered by many uh, uh, Hawaiians as the ninth island. So just, yeah. you know, these cool kind of ways to talk about various communities and everyday culture, everyday life of these populations. And and it's uh, it's called Neon what's it? Neon Pacific Neon Pacific yeah okay listeners you heard it go go check so, out uh, Neon Pacific and subscribe there and uh, yeah we look forward to uh, uh, to listening as well well once again Mark uh, we really appreciate your time and thanks for being here and we hope you're back soon yeah thanks again Eric for having me I, I always enjoy this okay thanks Crossroads would like to thank Tommy Brown for today's music. And the Chi Yu for production assistance. 谢谢您的收听，我们下次再见。